So I uh, I spent the last couple of days in 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 New York. I was at a wedding um, for, like I mentioned, one of our uh, former uh, former harvesters, uh, Poram. And uh, I don't often go to New York. It's a little bit uh, too much for me. But um, when we got there, so I, I flew on the same flight as a couple of our house church shepherds. Uh, Eugene's wife, Joyce, uh, was on the flight, and, and uh, KCA was with me as well. And so we got in, and the plan was that uh, uh, a group of us were supposed to stay at a hostel in Long Island City, which is kind of uh, part of Queens. And so uh, we got into LaGuardia Airport, and um, Joyce was supposed to go to Manhattan to uh, drop off some stuff with uh, Eugene's brother, Albert. And uh, Casey and I were supposed to meet up with one of three groups of harvesters. A bunch of harvesters were already there. And so um, there's a group with Janet and her family, a group with John and his uh, people, and a group with uh, Yesung and, and Yeti and the Han family. So we were supposed to meet up with one of these three groups. But uh, make a long story short, uh, Joyce said, you guys need to come with me right, to Manhattan, right? even though it's like far away from where we need to go. She said, you have to come with me. I think she was scared of the, uh, the golden horse taxi, which was like, uh, you know, she's scared to be in a taxi by herself. And so uh, we said, okay, we'll go with you. It seemed like an okay idea until we realized that we'd be lugging our luggage all around Manhattan looking like stinking tourists the whole time, right? I didn't realize how foolish it was until later we met up with some of our other people and I asked them, hey, why don't you guys carry uh, one bag each? And looking at them, they looked so silly. But I was wondering why every person on the street was asking us who was working for this, this group. They were like, would you like to see the Empire State Building? We're like, no, we're not tourists. We, we live in New York. We just carry our bags around. But that's kind of what we're doing. We're like dodging all of these puddles on the road and, and uh, craziness like that. Uh, we ate in Koreatown, and then we, it was time for us to go to the rehearsal dinner in um, some other part across the river. I don't know where it was. Um, so there's this great uh, new thing called Uber. It's uh, several months old, but Uber is kind of like a ride-sharing service where any Joe Schmo like us who has a car and has an insurance and has a driver's license can pick people up from wherever you are, and they'll drive you to where you want to go. Right? It's really cool. And so we said, hey, let's try Uber, and we're passing around. You got these. We had these, like, if you refer someone and they download the app, then you get $30 free, and they get $30 free. So like, this is great. And so our whole church is there. Everyone has these, like, $30 free. So we're traveling New York for free. Uh, it's pretty cool. So I called the guy. We're outside of a Korean bakery coffee shop, and I, 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 using the app, I said, hey, come and get us. And so it tells you exactly. It has a picture of the guy, his name. His name was Muad, and it Toyota Camry, and it says, like, where he is, and it shows, like, these dots and all these cars, and there's just basically, like, cars hovering around any given area. There's, like, all these cars waiting to pick up uh, people based on the app. And so this guy, Muad, is about four, uh, four minutes away, but we see this car driving by, and, and uh, the, the ladies are like, that's Muad. <laughs> but I'm like, he's four minutes away. And so he drives by, and so they scream at him, but he goes by. And then we're like, he'll, he'll come back around. It's a one-way road. Comes back around, and, and Joyce was like, that's it. That's a Toyota Camry. That's Muad. I was like, it's still two minutes away. But she screams. She runs in the middle of the road. She's like, Muad, Muad. And he stops for a second. He looks at her. I think he got like super like, uh, flipped out, and so he drove off. And so there's an option you can contact the driver. So I called him. I said, hey, Moad, you drove by us twice. And he's like, oh, where are you? I said, we're on uh, in front of the Cafe Benet. There's a big uh, FedEx truck. He's like, what road are you on? I was like, oh, man, I have no idea. So I'm asking him, hey, what road are we on? What road? 32nd, 33rd, which one was it? And, and people are telling us different things. Obviously, we have no idea, so they're just making up numbers. I was like, uh, and he's like, I'm on 30th. And then cl- cl- phone call drops. I was like, okay, cool. So I called him back, and uh, it's all static. I can't hear anything. So I hang up the phone, and I call him back, and he doesn't answer the phone. I was like, darn it, Joyce. I just care. So I hang up the phone. I look at the app, and the app says, your reservation has been canceled. Like, what? So so we're like, okay, what are we going to do? We got to get to that place. Should we, should we get a taxi? What should we do? And so we, we looked for these three, three taxis, and they're all filled with people. So I pushed the app again, and there's another guy that came, and it pops, this thing pops up and says, oh, your rates have doubled because of high call, high call volume and heavy traffic. Your rates have doubled, so you'll be paying two times the normal rate. Click OK if that's what you want to do. So I said, well, we've got to get to this place. I said, OK, and the car ended up coming, and it took us. That was our first experience with Uber. Right. Uber failure, that's what we called it. It was crazy. So we're having this headache, and then we get to the rehearsal. Rehearsal dinner is all fine. It's cool. We had a good time. And then we're going back to our hostel. Right? A hostel is 
I don't know why it's called a hostel. We're trying to figure it's between a house and a hotel, but it was pretty, it was pretty ghetto. It's like a, a dorm room for mostly like European and Asian travelers. So the reason we booked it was there was supposed to be like four girls in their room and four guys in, in our room. But by the time the time for us came to get to New York, <laughs> two of the four guys had dropped out. By the time it, uh, the rehearsal dinner was done, the third guy dropped out also. And so we had a reservation for two. There's a bedroom of four. And so two random people are staying in that room with me. So two bunk beds, and I get in the room at like midnight, and I'm like, man, what is going on with the, I wonder who my roommates are going to be. They walk in, and one cat is from Amsterdam. All right, this guy's like, you know, oh, these dorms should be co-ed, and, and, and where I'm from, the, the men and women, they all sleep together. And I'm like, hey, that's awesome. And he's, a, he's, he's an international student, so I think the first words he learned were, were curse words. So he's like dropping bombs all around, and, and the Japanese guy, uh, the guy from Japan, this guy had no joke, like four-inch fingernails, like Wolverine. So he's sitting on top of his bed. I mean, it, it, this is like, he's got a, you know, those like surgeon's masks over his mouth so he doesn't breathe in the polluted air. And he's sitting on top of his bed. And he's like touching his, like his phone is right here. He's like, it's crazy. Like, I'm going to die tonight in New York City. And next thing I know, the guy from Amsterdam is walking up completely naked i'm sitting on my bed i look up and his like butt is in my face and i'm like what is going on here like i need to hurry up and sleep but i was scared to death if i sleep i'm not going to wake up in the morning so I'm, I'm trying my best just to fall asleep to put all these things behind me but i'm like by the by the time it gets about the third hour of my sleep there's subway trains in new york are going all night long and they're waking me up and as soon as i wake up i'm like freezing cold it's raining I'm getting, like, no sleep at all. Like, this is, the, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. I thought to myself, man, this is, uh, and this is the first 12 hours. I said, I love New York. <laughs> this is awesome. I could go on about the next day and about this morning, but I'm not going to. I say this tongue-in-cheek because I really did have a great time. But um, there's a lot of weird things that happened, a lot of strange things that happened in just a span of a day. But when you think about having a bad day, I don't think anyone or anything can compare with the kind of day uh, that a man named Job had uh, in the Bible. We're going to look at um, the book of Job. And, and Job is popular because, I mean, it's a long, it's a long book. It's like 42 chapters. We're not going to read all of it. Um, but we're going to just read uh, Job chapter 1, verse 1. And the reason why Job is so powerful and it has enduring value is because it's not just a story of a man who had a bad day, but he's an innocent man who had a bad day. And so it causes us to ask some very difficult questions like why do bad things happen to good people? Why do innocent people suffer? Why do, where is God in the face of hardship? Where is God in the face of all these challenges of life? And, and what's going on in situations like this? We're going to read Job chapter 1. We're going to read all of Job chapter 1. I'll make reference to some of the other uh, chapters and verses in the book. But uh, we're going to just pretty much focus on uh, uh, reading chapter 1. And then I'll, I'll walk through this together with us. This is uh, God's word, Job chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz, there was a man. There lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they'd invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And a period of feasting had run its course. Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he'd sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where did you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he'll surely 
curse you to your face. Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself, uh, do not lay a finger. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting, drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. Suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house, collapsed on them, and they're dead. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. This Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshipped, worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This is God's word. So Job's day, uh, much like in our day, uh, people suffered. I mean, that's just the reality of life. Uh, in the time that Job was living, 20% of babies wouldn't make, it to, uh, wouldn't make it to their first birthday. 50% of kids wouldn't make it past 10 years old. Wouldn't make it to their 10th birthday. That means you have kids, uh, the great majority of parents would understand what it is to bury their child before they get to their own funeral. Right? They knew what suffering was. They knew what suffering, what it meant to suffer. But the difference between them, people then, and us now, difference between people of generations past and our generations, that they expect suffering. <clears throat> they anticipate suffering to be a normal part of, of the course of life. It's the same thing with our parent generation, any immigrant parent generation. Uh, even if they're non-immigrant generation that grew up in America, they expect suffering. They've been through war. But today, we have all kinds of medication. We have all kinds of technology. We have all kinds of things to deal with the suffering in our lives because we don't see suffering as a normal part of life in this life that God has ordained under the sinful son. But instead, we see suffering as just an inconvenience, something that we need to get rid of in order that we might go on with life. Why? Because we think of ourselves as the center of the world, and it's about our comfort, our convenience, our happiness. Therefore, suffering needs to be done away with. But the ancients, not only the ancients, but generations, even one generation prior, didn't see it like that. They saw suffering as par for the course of life, and Job understood what that meant. If there ever was a man who lived out Murphy's Law, anything that could go wrong will go wrong, it was Job. Two things are, are crystal clear at the outset. One, Job was rich. It lists out in verses 1 through 3 all of the things that he had. This is kind of listing out his net worth. If he was living today, he would be Warren Buffett. He would be uh, Bill Gates. He would be Donald Trump. He'd be these great... Uh, these great billionaires that the world knows about today. This was Job. There was no one like him in all the land, it says. This was Job. He was rich and he was righteous, it says. He feared God. God considered him to be the best among the peoples of the land. And before all of this stuff happens where Job has all of these things taken away, it says that God's having a, a holding court in the heavenly court and Satan rolls up and he says, you know what? Your people are just hanging around and all this stuff. And God says, you know, my servant Job... There's nobody like him. He loves me like nobody else does. And Satan says in verse 9, does he love you for nothing? The reason he loves you is because you've given him all this stuff. You put a hedge of protection around him, but I guarantee you, he who praises you in the sunshine will not praise you in the storm. And God says, well, I trust Job. I am with him. And in my sovereign plan, I will allow you to afflict him with suffering in order that he will show his faith in me and say, in the midst of all of that, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's going to prove my glory to you, even in the face of deepest suffering, of adversity, in meaningless loss. He's going to prove me to be faithful. He's going to prove me to be glorious and worthy of his worship, even when everything falls apart in his life. He says, 
Be my guest. Put him to the test because all of these things that you do are still under the sovereign hand of a loving God. And so God says, have at it. As we look at this, how do we see Jesus? And what does Job's life teach us? The first thing we see is that the innocent are not immune to suffering. The innocent are not immune to suffering. So think about this because we have in in our understanding of how the universe works this idea that, yeah, of course, bad people should suffer. But good people should not. That's why stories like Job and stories like other people, innocent people who suffer, makes us angry. It shouldn't be like that. The religions, other religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, they have a word for this. You know what this word is? The the religious word is karma. Okay, karma. This is what the Buddhists, the Hindus, and other people say. They say karma means that everything bad that happens to you, all of your suffering is punishment for something that you've done either in this life or in a previous life. So if you lose your job, if you get sick, someone passes away, they say that's karma because you've been a jerk in this life. If you're good in this life, it's because you've been a jerk in another life when, before you were reincarnated. Think, that's karma. Christians, don't, we don't talk about karma in our Bible, but I promise you that we too, in a lot of ways, believe karma to be true. Isn't that why we say things like, why me? What did I do to deserve this? What have I done? How come I'm getting this? I don't deserve this. I've been good. I've been faithful. I've been serving you faithfully. I've been teaching Bible study. I've been cleaning the church. I've been getting up early to pray. Why me? Why is this happening to me? God, I'm trusting you. I'm praying. I haven't sinned. Why me? We believe this, don't we? In a certain level and at a, uh, at a heart level, an emotional level, we believe something like karma has to be true. We believe that built into the fabric of life, there's this divine sense of justice that says, if you do good for God, you do good for other people, then suffering will not come to you. There will be a hedge of protection around you. Isn't that what we believe? I strip away all of the theological jargon and get to the heart of it in your practical, personal experience. Isn't that what many of us believe? Why is this happening to me? What have I done to deserve this fate? If there was anyone who did not deserve to suffer, it would be Job. But he tells us that even the innocent are not immune to suffering. Starting in verse 13, look at what, look at what it says happened to him. His sons and daughters were hanging out, but this messenger comes and says, up oh, your oxen, donkeys, uh, they got stolen. Servants are all killed. Before he's finished giving this report, another guy comes and says, hey, you know what? Um, fire came and burned up your sheep and your servants. Hey, that's kind of crazy. I'm the only one left. While he's still speaking, three parts, another guy comes. All of your donkeys, which is a symbol of wealth in that time, all got taken away. Fourth guy comes and says, you know what? Not, not, just, your, not just your servants and your, your animals, your possessions, but your kids. They're all gone. And Job falls to the ground and worships in verse 21. Naked I came like that Amsterdam international student. Naked I came, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I didn't say that last night, but may the name of the Lord be praised. Even in the midst of all of that, he praises God that I will still trust you. And in a sense, God in heaven looks down at Job and he looks at Satan. He says, see, I knew my boy would pull through. You said he only loves me because I've given him all these things. Look, I took all these things away and he still says I'm worthy to be praised. Hey, what about, what about us? Let's, let's, let's get to the heart of the matter here. Why do we love God? Why do we worship God? Why do we follow God? Why do we trust God? Do we trust God because he takes care of all of our needs? Because we've got a home, because we've got a job, because we've got money, because we've got kids, because I've got good grades at school, because I'm going to the school of my dreams. Is that why we trust God? Or would you trust God, not for what he gives, not for the benefit that he gives, but would you love God, trust God, worship God, just because he's God and because he's worthy, because he's beautiful? Is 
he enough. Let me put it another way. I, I know we can't separate who God is from what he does and what he gives to us. That's all part of who God is. But if God were to one by one take these things away from you, take these things away from me, the hopes, the dreams, the plans, the friendships, the relationships, the job, the church, the friendships that we have. If God were to one by one take all of these things away and you are left with naked, just you and God, would you still be able to say, God, I still love you. I still love you. I still trust you. I still worship you. He's good enough when we've got everything taken care of, but is he good enough when everything falls apart? Do we love God for God's sake? Or do we love God for the things that he gives to us? So yesterday at, this, at, at the wedding, Boram and Sam get married. I was talking with Boram. I said, hey, what? Why do you want to marry Sam? I just said a very, you know, I just want to know. I just want to know. I, th- that's an important thing to know. She said all of these great things about him. But what if she said something like this? I want to marry him because he's, oh, he's rich. Filthy, filthy, filthy rich. He's got money coming out of his ears. He buys me anything I want. We walk down Park Avenue, Fifth Avenue, all these streets, and anything I want in the window. Some people window shop. I window shop, and next thing, it's on my doorstep. Everything I've ever needed, I've, everything I've ever wanted, he gives to me. That's why I love him. Is that it? He's got a, he's got a helicopter. He's got a private jet. And sometimes, sometimes we'll like fly over the city and look down on it, city lights, and we'll have a champagne toast in the helicopter. And yeah, I love that helicopter. That's why I love him. That's why I want to marry him. Is that it? When I tell you about his jet, and sometimes like we'll take off for the weekend and we'll go on his private jet to this island. Did I tell you he has a private island? It's just, it's awesome. It's just, you know, beautiful views. We see sharks and dolphins and whales and all of these things, and they never come near us. They never bite us or anything like that. We take a trip on our private jet and we fly back. But what am That's kind of like superficial. Isn't there anything else that you like about him? Oh, yeah, you know what? Uh, on his speed dial, he's got Jay-Z. So anytime we want to watch a Nets game, anytime we want to watch a concert, anytime we want to hang out with Beyonce, he lets it happen, makes it happen. It's awesome. So it's going to be a great life. Is that it? Mm. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Say, you know what? You don't really love him, do you? You don't really love him. You only love what he can give to you. But isn't that how many of us view a relationship with God? The reason I love God is because he gives me salvation because I can go to heaven because I feel good when I come because I have hope because I have someone I can talk to in my times of need. These things are all great. We need to do. But what if, what if all of the things that we had in this life were stripped away from us? Would we still say, blessed be the name of the Lord? We still say, God, you're still worthy even if everything in life around me was taken, though none go with me, still I will follow. Christ is enough for me. Would we still, could we still, could we still say that? God says the, the reason there's a test, the whole reason this is all happening, and Job doesn't know that there's this conversation going on in the heavenly court and that they're watching scene one, scene two of Job's life play out. But God's saying, I trust in Job. What if we begin to see our suffering in life not as something that needs to be medicated, something that needs to be removed from our lives, something where we need to do surgery and remove this suffering from our lives. But what if we saw it as God saying, you know what, I believe in my, I believe in my son. I believe that he loves me. I believe that he's going to be faithful. I believe that he's going to pull through and that in the test of whose glory 
weighs more, the glory of God or the desire of man that my son, my daughter is going to pull through in this situation? What if we begin to see it like this? See, Piper says there's a difference, right? There's a difference, two ways that we honor God. When we honor God, we honor God when we give thanks. We honor God by giving thanks shows how much the gift means to us. Whenever we say thanks, it's always thanks for something. Thanks for my friends. Thanks for my youth ministry. Thanks for my house church. Thanks for this job. Thank you for blessing me. Thanksgiving is always about the gifts that God has given to us. But when we suffer, we're showing not the worth of a gift. We're showing the worth of the giver. That because I'm suffering, I'm still worshiping you. I'm showing not how much I love the gifts that you give, but I'm showing how much I love you and how much you are worthy. When we suffer, sometimes the innocent do suffer. But could it be that when we do, that God is putting a test in our lives to say, is the glory of God worthy enough? even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of hardship. Satan says, yeah, you know what? That's great. He praises you because nothing's happened to him, but let me afflict his body with sickness, then see if he still praises you. And so he does. And Job gets afflicted with boils from head to toe. He's scratching. He's hurting. His wife says, just curse God. Why are you still praising him? And he says, never. I will still praise the Lord God. I'll still praise God. The innocent are not immune to suffering. And even though Job doesn't have these answers, right? he's questioning, he's wondering, why is all of these things happening? Yet he still says, I still choose to worship God. There's almost a sense of defiance in him. Even though he doesn't know that Satan is, a, is trying to mess with him, it's almost like he's staring the enemy in the face and saying, I, my heart will choose to say Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a willful choice that we make that says God is worthy even in the face of hardship, even in the face of suffering, even when everything seems to be falling apart in my life, even when I don't have answers to questions that I'm asking, God is still worthy of my worship and of my praise, of my devotion and my allegiance. The innocent aren't immune to suffering. That's the first thing we see. The second thing that we see here is that even though we don't know, we may not know the why, but we always know who. We may not know the answer to the question of why, but we always know the question, answer to the question, who. So again, Job is not getting any answers, so he's questioning, you know, are you still holding to your integrity? Chapter 2, verse 9, he says you're talking like a fool in all this. Again, Job did not sin in what he said. Starting in in chapter 2, all the way in for the next 20-some chapters, as Job is trying to figure all this stuff out, these three friends, like quote-unquote friends, rise up. And they say, Job, let, let's, let's talk for a second. And these three friends kind of represent traditional conventional wisdom. And one by one, all three of these guys come up, and one at a time they start saying, this is why this is happening. So three of them go at it with Job, three rounds each, right? This is a nine-round sparring battle, and each of them is saying the same thing. Job, there's something that you've done wrong because God doesn't just cause suffering. You must have done something wrong. You need to repent. This is divine retribution. Divine justice is taking course. You've done something wrong. You've you've committed a sin. You need to repent. And as Job searches his heart, for the life of him, he can't figure out what he did wrong. He's trying to figure out, I, you, know, I, I know, you know, I know that's usually how it seems to work, but I, I can't think of anything I did wrong. So back and forth, right? punch for punch. You did something wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. You need to confess. I don't know what to confess. Back and forth it goes. Back and forth it goes. And at the end of it all, he still doesn't get any answers. And yet why is it that through it all, right, through it all, he says, I still will choose to trust God. And God even said, the Bible even says, the narrator says that Job was innocent several times throughout this. Job gets no answers, but why can he still praise? Isn't that what we, I think a lot of times we want these answers, don't we? 
And why is my grandma sick? God, why did he go before his time? We want to know these answers. We ask the question, why? Job asked the question, why? But at the same time, he never got an answer to that, but all he got was a who. It's God. God. Your loving God is behind all of these things. Even if I were to tell you, Job, you wouldn't understand. That's kind of what we get from the first 30-some chapters of Job. See, uh, my uh, son, two and a half years old, almost two years old and change, Elijah, he's in this phase where he's asking why all the time. Really annoying. He doesn't just say why, but he like crinkles his eye. Why? And he's like, <laughs> why? <laughs> Daddy, can I watch my show now? Yeah, Elijah, let me uh, go make Elisa's food first. Why? <laughs> because she's hungry. Why? Because she hasn't eaten. Why? Because she was sleeping. Why? Because she was tired. Why? Because she was awake. Why? Elijah, no, you can't watch your show. Just wait. Just wait. Even if I, I'm telling you why, but you don't understand. At a certain point, you just have to trust me that, no, you can't watch it. There's a reason why you can't watch it. Okay? That's it. Why? Yeah, exactly. Why? Just wait. Just wait. You'll watch your show. Just wait. You know what this is called? It's called faith. It's called faith. Even though we don't know why, we know who. Elise, little baby, she's so cute to me. Like, cute. She's like smiles, and she's like this cute and, and we have to take her to get her shots and olive doesn't want to hold her when she gets shots she's with the other two so i'm holding elise some parents say no you shouldn't look at the baby because the baby associates your face with the shot and maybe that's why she cries when she sees me all the time i think she really just wants mommy so i'm holding her and the doctor comes nurse comes and puts this injection of pain and suffering in her. Wondering why would my loving parent, usually they kiss me, they change my diapers, they hug me, they hold me, they make me laugh, but why are they making me cry like this? It's crying. I know that's what she's saying. I to say, Elise, listen, because this is going to protect you from hepatitis A and B and from Tetanus, she's not going to understand. But at some point, she just has to trust the one who is holding on to her. Elijah has gotten into this thing, and not only asking why, but he wants to touch the stove when it's on. When it's black, he never wants to touch it, but when it's red, he always wants to touch it. So Olive's like, Elijah, no. It's like, why? He gets so upset. He doesn't understand. Uh, you won't understand. We tell him, your sister touched it. She got big ayah. She had to get these, like her skin was like bumpy like this. and She had to get gauze on it. You don't understand. But the older you get, you're going to understand. Manny was sick with strep throat a, a couple weeks back, but she loves going to school now because she's got friends. And, and so she loves going to school. And she'd wake up every morning, jump out of bed and run out, say, can I go to school? We'll touch her. We'll check her, uh, her, her temperature. Sorry, you can't go to school. Like, why? I feel fine. I don't understand why. But you're contagious and you get other people sick. and doesn't understand that stuff. But this is faith. The older we get, the more we can trust. The more we grow in our faith, the more we can trust the hand that sovereignly gives us both pain and pleasure. We don't understand everything that comes our way. We don't need to understand why all the time. But if we can know who, if we can trust who it is that gives these things to us, then we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. See, Satan is doing all of these things. But in the midst of all of that, sometimes we think like God and Satan. It's like these two people on our shoulder, little angel, little devil. They're equally powerful, right, one with another. 
But listen, check this out. In this passage and throughout the Bible, it makes it very clear. makes it very clear Satan had to ask God for permission to do this. They're not equally powerful people. No, Satan's a little stinking minion. Right? God's going to smush him. He's nothing. He roars around, roars like a roaring lion, prowls like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. But he's, 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 he's a little minion. He's asking God. Same thing when Peter denies Jesus. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. But Jesus says, Peter, Peter, listen. Satan has asked me to sift you like wheat. Behind a frowning circumstance is a smiling providence of God that says, I know and work all things for your good, both pain and pleasure. My hand is in sovereign control over all of these things. Can you trust him? Can you trust him? That God is good. He loves you. He's working out his purposes in your life, even through the suffering and even through the hardships of your life. We may not always know why, but we will always know who. Last thing that we see is that suffering can plunge us deeper in our relationship with God. My family of five, Elise obviously doesn't know how to swim. Uh, Elijah doesn't know how to swim. He loves water, doesn't know how to swim yet. He likes taking baths. He likes putting water in his mouth and spitting it out at people. He thinks that's like the funniest thing. He loves his little squirt bottle, the squirt people and the squirt baby and squirt all these things. He likes doing that thing, stuff like that, especially when it's indoors and he shouldn't be doing He loves doing things, seeing things get wet, but he's not very good at swimming. And unless we're holding his waist above water, holding his head above water, that's all he, all he can see is above the water. Shh. Ooh, this is cool. Manny has taken swimming lessons so she can put her head underwater for like one, one thousand, two, one thousand, picks her head back up. She said, I did it. But she can't open her eyes underwater yet. So she can't see what it's like to look underneath the water. Me, I'm not very good at swimming. A couple times I've opened my eyes underwater. I've seen people's legs and it's kind of cool. I put on goggles and I've gone snorkeling a couple of times. Pretty neat. Olive is the swimmer of our family. She's always said to me, you have no idea what you're missing out on. You have no idea what it's like to be at one with the water, to let the water carry you in the places you've never gone. And she's like so poetic and so cool. And she, on our honeymoon, I was reading a book on the beach on the sand and she was snorkeling. She comes like, I saw all of these fish and these cool things. And then last week, I saw on Facebook a video of one of, our, one of our friends, Joseph Park, went cave diving with like scuba gear or something. He went down, down, baby. He went down, lower and lower, lower in the cave. And he saw all these like crazy, amazing things. I'm like, holy cow. That's like so awesome. And then if you even go deeper, 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 deeper into like coral reef area, you can see like Marlin and Nemo and all of these crazy things. The deeper you go, you see some crazy things under the water. Have you ever wanted to go deeper, deeper, deeper into the depths of God? A lot of us are just like Elijah, keeping our head above the water, seeing what everybody else sees. Others of us, a little bit of suffering. We medicate it so we can look like me under the water, see people's legs. That's cool. But suffering has a way of plunging us into the depths of God in a way that we've never before seen. You know the people who really know God? I know God. Tell stories of God. Stories of God like this experience, that thing. You're like, man, that, can you really have a relationship like that? People that have clung to the one who is clinging to, clinging to them in the midst of the storms of life. Suffering has a way of throwing us down into the depths of God and seeing him in a way that we've never before seen. So after all this complaining, finally in chapter 38, God, to the 37, God begins to talk. And for one, uh, chapter 38, one, two, uh, three chapters, he just goes off. It's awesome. Job's asking why, why, why are all these happening? 
things happening. So God says, all right, <laughs> you want to know why? He busts out with, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. 38 verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together? He's basically saying, listen, I made all of this stuff. You have no idea. You want to you you know the answer? Here's the answer, Job. It's me. I'm the answer. There's only one God in this universe, and it's not you. It's me. And even if I were to tell you why all these things were happening, you would have no idea how to fathom it, just like Elijah has no idea why he cannot watch his TV show right now. And he just goes off. It's a beautiful day. I'm going to say this to Elijah next time he asks, who is this that darkens my counsel? <laughs> Speaks words without knowledge. It's amazing. And then Job's only response is, okay, I will just shut up right now and I'll be quiet. You know, some things you can't explain, so you just have to experience them. The Grand Canyon. Niagara Falls, right? the sheer magnitude of a redwood tree. You can't explain those things. You have to experience it. And the beautiful thing about this in chapter 42, verse 5, Job says at the end of all this, he says, you know what? My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Good night. For all of my life, rich, righteous, religious, all these things, you can call me whatever you were. But up until then, I'd only heard of you. But now that I've gone through this, hey, my eyes have seen you. Life will never be the same again. The one thing Job never stopped doing, never stopped talking to God. God, what's going on? What's going on? Why is this happening to me? In the midst of all that, he never stopped praying, never stopped talking to God. There's one thing you get from this. Listen, if you're going through suffering, Keep on going to God. Talk to him about your heart. Yeah, you might get your butt kicked at the end, and, and God might say, listen, <laughs> let me show you a little something, something about who's God and who's not. But the, at the end of it, you're going to say, you know what? Before, I'd only barely gone underwater. Now, I see you in a way I've never seen you before. I've seen you in a way I've never seen you before. And he begins to get this picture. Job 19, verse 25. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. In the midst of all of this stuff, he makes this great declaration of faith. He says in Job 19, 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Expressing this great declaration that God Almighty is on high, he's going to vanquish Satan. And in the end, he's going to stand on the earth in judgment, and I will be vindicated. My heart longs to see him with my eyes in a way that I'm beginning to see right now. But what else, you know what else this means? In the, he will stand on the earth. It's a powerful declaration because you see, even Job is all about, it's all about Jesus. Say, there's going to come one redeemer. A redeemer is going to come. And on the same earth upon which we all stand, upon the same earth which inflicts suffering to us, upon the same earth out of which thorns infest the ground to bring suffering to our lives, there will be one who will stand upon that same earth. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? He would be born in a manger. He will be born in a time where infanticide is taking over the area in which he lives, where he was supposed to have been killed because there was a bloodthirsty king who wanted to eliminate all contenders to the throne. He was born in that. In the midst of uh, his earliest days, he had to flee the place where he was born. With his stepfather and his mother, he lived scandalized because his mother... Gave birth to him with a father who was not the man to whom she was married. Conceived of the Holy Spirit with the Virgin Mary. His life was scandalized. The hometown he grew up in, the Naz. Could anything good come from Nazareth? He was a victim of prejudice, of racism. 
His stepfather died when he was young. He grew up poor. Everything that he had was taken away from him. As he grew, he was a carpenter. He had no home, no place to lay his head, no money, no income. Traveling around this earth, he knew what it was to suffer. And in a kangaroo court of a trial, he was unjustly tried and sentenced to a death that he did not deserve. If there ever was an innocent sufferer, it was not Job, it was Jesus. You see, he is the true and greater Job, the one to whom Job's life points. It was Jesus who asked the questions why, but never gave up faith because he knew who it was that was holding Even to his dying day, he continued to trust God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he could cry out honestly, he could cry out earnestly, but he would not cry out ultimately because he knew that victory would ultimately be his. That's why Job could say, though my flesh should be destroyed, yet with my own eyes of flesh, I will see God. Listen, we don't get the answer to why all the time, but we always know who it is. And in the face of the question why, God oftentimes just gives us himself. And when I'm suffering, when you're suffering, when everything around me is falling apart, there's nobody else that I want than the one who knew what it was to suffer the way that you and I know. It's Jesus Christ. It's him. It's him. It's him that comes to us and meets us in our time of deepest need. He stood upon this earth in order to conquer suffering and Satan so that one day there will be no more suffering. That one day we will see him face to face. There will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, no more why. And the only thing that will be left is him, is Jesus And then all of the years of pain and all of the years of suffering, all the years of questioning, all the years of doubting will all give way to the blinding brilliance and beauty of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God seated on the throne. And then we'll throw our crowns down and we'll say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Let's pray together. This Jesus suffered for you. Not so that you would not suffer in this life, but so that one day all suffering would be removed from your life and from this world. Can you trust him? Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, I trust you. I believe in you. I may not always get the answer to why, but I will always get the answer to who. And as we pray, maybe you're going through some suffering in your life. Lord, I need you. Come, remind me of who you are. I love you. I honor you. Right. Let's take a moment to pray to the Lord God moment to pray, to confess our need for him. Lord, I need you. Realize when all is said and done, I don't really need to know why, as long as I see who. Let's pray together. Say, Lord, help me to see you. Help me to see you. Everything within me. Let's pray together for a few moments. said to me in my seminary days probably half of the people who come to worship on Sunday mornings come carrying with them a pool of tears afraid to go back into the world go back to school scared to go back to work scared to face the bullies of Monday morning afraid of the 
doctor's report that just came a family member fearful of the very real struggles the loneliness that they feel can we just put our hand on the shoulder the back the same gender you can hold hands even just pray for one another say Lord in their suffering whether now or in the future Lord help them to see you Jesus help them to see you clearly help them to see you clearly so let's do that. Let's uh, pray. You don't have to pray quietly. You can pray out loud if you want. Let's pray for one another. Lord Almighty, that you would help them to see you. Okay, let's pray together. Just a couple moments for one another. And I'll pray for us and we'll come to the table. Grace. thank you so much that in this life you don't provide a a release from suffering but you do provide your presence and a promise that one day there will be no more Father until that day comes may we be faithful knowing that you will be faithful to us thank you that you consider us faithful to be enlisted into the service of the King of Kings, the Most High God. May we prove ourselves to be faithful and when we fail, look to Jesus, fall on grace, find hope, find mercy, find love. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.